0: Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Teslar Watches. This fall, our tech team tried out a new form of wearable wellness for a roundup on productivity tools. The Teslar watch they wore has a turbo chip that works in tandem with the battery of the watch and is designed to mimic Earth's natural frequency. The idea is that the watch would help keep the body's own electromagnetic field in balance. To learn more about the innovative Tesla technology, head to teslarwatches.com and enter code GOOP20 for 20% off. That's code
1: GOOP20. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, You get criticized. You do? Yeah. (laughs) Did you hear about that? (laughs) I didn't find the one, I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic.
0: Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand, on the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled.
1: I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life.
0: I'm Gwyneth Peltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today's guest is Kevin Systrom. Kevin is a computer programmer. Actually, he's a pretty big one. He's the co-founder of Instagram. Kevin and I had a fascinating conversation about how Instagram evolved, including how his wife was actually the one behind adding filters, which ended up being the catalyst to their success. We also talked about finding the balance between being creative and achieving a big mission. And I got to hear what Kevin thinks about his enormous impact on our social culture.
1: We clearly cared deeply about the business, and we were going to be guardians of it for many years. But it's so funny to look back because (laughs) I remember, you know, pitching the idea and people were like, there's no money in photos. So
0: let's get to my chat with Kevin Systrom. Well, I think when, when we met, we were at some random wine dinner and then I learned all about your own Hold on, It wasn't a
1: random wine dinner. It was my wine dinner.
0: I crashed your wine dinner. Do,
1: don't you remember this? You, I didn't know thought, it was yours. Oh, that's right. You thought it was going to be a business dinner. Yes, I did. And it was literally just like our friends were all just hanging out and someone knew you that was there and invited right. you. And you only, I, I remember thinking like, wow, she came a long way for like a wine dinner. Uh, and yes, only in retrospect, right. you were like, oh no, I literally thought I had to be there because yeah. it was a business thing. So My, thank you for coming, by the way. Yes.
0: I was I was told at the time, <laughs> you have to come to this business dinner. And then I went to the reserve, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then I was like, so where's the PowerPoint? Like, when is this thing starting? And it was just a great dinner. Yeah. But I didn't realize that you were the host. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't realize that, is the word that's, o- by the way, on a we, file? When, uh, a-
1: a- I know you you're saying it as you spell it, I agree. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Isn't it wino, uh, wino, or wine I don't know.
0: Well, there's no W, isn't it?
1: O O-E- O-E- N- o-, o E. O E. And
0: Oh O file
1: This will make the the B side of the podcast.
0: Also, I think one of the coolest <laughs> things. But that was a fun you. dinner, thank you. It was such a fun dinner. And my point was that I was just like starting to think about my way around monetizing my company. And you and I was sat next to you, so I was like, of course, intimidated. And you were so nice and you answered my questions and you weren't condescending in any way. And I we had a really nice conversation. You asked me what I was doing and how I was thinking my way around it. And it was very cool. So you became one of my early mentors, oh, as good. it were.
1: I think starting anything in an area that you are not known for is one of the hardest things in the world. I mean, I can imagine, let's say you're an actor and you're like known for a specific type of character and then you get out of that character, like that's got to be hard. Yeah. And now let's imagine you do three of those. And then you're like, I want to start a business. Like imagine that, how hard that is. I mean, I, I just came off of, you know, eight years at a company that is known for one thing. And no matter what I or we do next, there's always going to be that thing. And if you try to do something new, I found this in exploring some of the areas that I'm excited about going into. Everyone kind of looks at you funny because they're like, no, no, you should go back and do like another social media thing again. So I understand why it's helpful to have someone who will listen.
0: And people hold you to that benchmark, right? They're like, well you created instagram so whatever you do next better be fucking impactful <laughs> like you, you No
1: pressure by the way. No yeah. pressure at all. No pressure yep. at all. Nope. None. None.
0: So tell me about I mean I know but for the benefit of our audience tell me a little bit about how the idea of instagram came to you.
1: So people like to assume that you were sitting there uh, uh, like in front of a like a whiteboard or something and you're sketching everything out and then you have this brilliant moment where all the stars align, you've, you've got this beautiful mind moment, right? And then like you snap your fingers, create an app, and then all of a sudden it has a billion people. That And nothing could be further from the truth. That's
0: what it looked like from the outside.
1: Well, I can't remember the exact quote, but someone once said that like every successful company is like, You know, it's been around for 10 years and you know, it nearly failed five times. And then all of a sudden it feels like it succeeds. That's how it feels on the inside sometimes, but getting back to the story. So where do I start? Initially I wanted to, I wanted to make something that worked on the mobile phone that took advantage of the fact that I thought all of us would be carrying around these iPhones in our pocket. And today we take that for granted. I see yours on the table, mine's in my pocket, right? That wasn't the case in, you know, in 2010, I, the first iPhone came out, what, I think it was 07 and you know, it was a nice device, but not everyone owned a smartphone. So it, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that everyone had one of these, but I said to myself, wow, that's a shift. Like what will that enable when everyone carries this thing around? Like that's different than what we do today. And I thought that there were probably a handful of things that might change. Number one, I thought location would be an important part of how you shared your life. So, you know, at the time, I wasn't single, but I certainly wasn't married. My girlfriend and I would go out. We'd have a lot of fun. We'd go to bars, meet up with friends. It was about being social. And and I wanted to share that with people. And I wanted to know where other people were. And I knew that that might be part of the future of having these phones. but. This is a long way of saying location was a big part of it. But interestingly, as I started to make that idea, it was a check-in app where you could check in at a bar or restaurant or, right?
0: Like a map-based where your friends... Yeah.
1: So, you know, like Foursquare or Mm -hmm. Gowalla at the time. There were a couple others. I was yet another one of those. Right. And my co-founder and I were sitting there working on this idea. And we're like, ah, we're going to be a better version of these things. It was really clear to me that that wasn't going to be the case after about nine months of working on it. Like no one was using it. There wasn't any reason to use it versus say Foursquare. And then Facebook launched check-ins and it was just like a really crowded space. And our our VC looked at us and was like, what are you building?
0: And how much money had you raised at this point? At
1: that point, I think it was, we had raised a half a million dollars, which seems like a paltry sum compared to what startups are doing these days. But let me tell you in those days, that was, that was a whole lot of money. And we had burned all of like maybe $10,000 of it because we were super cheap. We didn't spend any money. But Mike and I sat down after a meeting with a venture capitalist who was so like- So not you-? even paying
0: yourselves.
1: I didn't take a salary. We had to pay my co-founder because he was on a, um, he was on a spe- special visa where like- <laughs> um, Oh, I can't remember the name of the exact visa. But anyway, he's from Brazil originally. So he needed a visa to work with us. And in order to get that visa, you have to pay a living wage. So our VC looked at us and the VC was like, I don't get what you're building. I don't know why you're building this thing. There are so many checking apps. So Mike and I kind of hung our heads. And I'm sure you have a lot of stories in your career like this, where you go back and at your lowest of your low... Something clicks and we sat in front of a whiteboard and we said, all right, well, we have to change this app somehow. It was a checking app. So we listed the three things that it did really well. One was making plans with other people to go socialize. Two was photos. Like you could actually share a photo of what you were doing when you were doing it. And that was a unique feature. And I actually can't remember what the third was, but we definitely had three. And we sat there and we were like, all right, what do we love about this thing? It wasn't called Instagram at the time. And we said, you know... What was it called? It was called Bourbon. Bourbon. Yeah, I know. I like that. Yeah. So Bourbon was B-U-R-B-N. And there's a whole different story about why it was called that. But let's just stick with it for a let's second. Let's
0: focus on the prize.
1: We crossed off we crossed off the making plans because we thought that was, I don't know, not niche, just smaller. Right. And, uh, and the third one we crossed off because it's so unimportant. I can't even remember it today. But then we circled the photos part. And we circled it because we were like, okay, there's going to be a day where everyone has these in their pockets. They're going to carry around a camera with them at all times. What a, what better way to share what you're doing than that? And that's when we took the code base. We literally like ripped off all the branding. We added a couple features that let you check. Instead of checking in, you could just post a photo without a location. And, uh, and that was Instagram 1.0. And And you
0: branded Instagram at that
1: point? No, it had no name. It was called Codename. Codename. But there's actually a really interesting short story about how it it transformed into Instagram. Tell me. So we had done that transformation. We were exhausted. We were like, all right, we're done. You know, we'll try this one more time and then maybe we'll shutter the company if it doesn't work. So my wife... Well, she was my girlfriend at the time, but my wife, Nicole, was like, hey, let's go down and take a little vacation. So we couldn't afford anything. We went to this tiny little town in Mexico called Todos Santos. Have you ever been there? I have. It's beautiful. It's like a little artist community.
0: Baja, California. Yeah.
1: But we stayed in this tiny little bed and breakfast and I brought my laptop and it was supposed to be a time to rest and reflect, but we were walking on the beach down there and I was like, so Nicole, do you think you're going to use this new thing that, uh, that we built? She's like, no, I I don't really like posting photos. And I said, well, why not? And she was like, well, your friend's photos always look so cool. And like, I can't take photos that look like your friend's photos. I said, well, you just have to filter them. There are all these apps out there. Use the filter apps. And she goes, well, you should probably add filters to this thing. So I remember walking. No wonder
0: you married her. Right,
1: And uh, I walked back. To the hotel with her and I immediately got on my laptop and I spent, oh, it must have been like six hours researching how to make a filter. And I made the first one that afternoon. You made
0: it how? Like X-Pro2 wrote...
1: it's called. You, you, I don't know if you use the filters in Instagram, but X-Pro2 is there.
0: But how do you do that? How do you engineer a filter on your laptop?
1: That was what I had to figure out that afternoon. It effectively, like you take a photo and you effectively walk through each pixel Okay, wow. And you say, what color are you, pixel? And you say, okay, well, I'm going to map you to a slightly different color shade. That's like uh, an easy way of explaining it. Yep. And that's what I did for that filter. I just walked through the pixels and changed them slightly in color or tone. And then I sent it to Mikey, my co-founder, who's back working hard on you know the app back in San Francisco. And he was like, oh, this is pretty cool. So the next day I made another one. Next day I made another one. Got home and we gave it to a few friends and they were like, this is super interesting. And it took us about a week to come up with the name Instagram. But anyway, you asked, how do we come up with Instagram? That's the long version love it. of the many mistakes that led to the thing that ended up becoming Instagram. And by the way, that was 2010, so a long time ago. And then Instagram obviously had to go through a lot to get to where it is today, yeah. but...
0: So what what started to happen? You showed it to your friends and did it catch on? Like did they start using it? It was just an organic growth.
1: So believe it or not, every you know how I said we had the app bourbon? Yeah. Well we tried to get all those people to use Instagram because we were like, hey, there's How many users
0: were there at that point? A hundred. Oh right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was a nice it was like (laughs) as many people that go through like a nice little restaurant in an afternoon, right? But believe it or not, all of them hated it. They were like, there's no way I'm gonna use this. Like, keep working on bourbon. This thing is not for me. And we, and we almost killed the project at that point because we were like, maybe this isn't a thing. Oh, and, but we showed a few more people who became excited about it. A few more people who be, and eventually we just made the call that we were gonna go all in. And I remember on launch day, we had a, I, I still have a photo of my inbox somewhere where I queued up all these emails to all these famous reporters everywhere that I didn't know just to tell them about this thing. And today I think that would be crazy. But like back in the day, that's the hustle I guess you had to have. Mm-hmm. And we launched and I don't know, it just took. People loved it. The first day we had 25,000 people sign up. and what I remember it feel like? It's both amazing because you're like, oh, we're going to make it. This is going to work. And also it's like a gut punch because you're totally not prepared for it. You're like... You know, it's zero to 60 in less than a few seconds. And, you know, the site would come crashing down. We couldn't support it because Mike and I didn't know what we were doing. We had this little brittle infrastructure to support the site. But we worked hard for like a good few weeks, day in, day out to get the site to where it needed to be to support the traffic. And then it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And we crossed a million users three months in. And I thought that was like the biggest thing that had ever happened. And that's funny because I look back now with a billion plus people that use it every single month. It's a wild ride.
0: It's totally extraordinary. It's amazing. How do you reconcile, like as a human being, the impact that you have made on social culture? Like not social in terms of tech social, like social, how people interact.
1: So here's the weird thing. Like, uh, I remember going to a U2 concert with Mike, my co-founder, when we were just starting. We got invited because I think a venture capital firm, like they like bought a box or something. Right. And we went, we had a moment where they played, you know, how t- sometimes at sporting events, they do guess the audience, like guess how many people are in the stadium.
0: No, Okay, they do. never go to
1: sports. <laughs> okay, well, uh, they do. And you're sitting there and they're like, is it 50,000? Is it 60,000? Is it 70,000? They're always very specific numbers, right? And they played that game that night at the concert, like between the opening band and you two coming on. And, and I think the answer was like 60,000 something. And I turned to Mike and I was like, isn't it weird that we add like this many people per day to the service? And what's weird about that is that when you're an artist and you perform in front of 60,000 people, that's going to be a rush, right? I don't know what that feels like at all. Because when Mike and I create this thing, it's digital. I never see the people. I see the count in the database go up. I know that people are using it. It's a detachment from reality because you don't...
0: Yeah, you're two guys in a room.
1: Yeah. And by the way, we were... it's very
0: abstract when you think about it.
1: Totally. And we were 13 people when we sold the company. That's A nuts. few years. So, I mean, we're in this room right here. Our office was like this big. It was a, It was an office, When right? you sold your
0: company yeah. for a billion
1: dollars. So, so you asked like, what does it feel like? I can't explain because right. it was this weird out of body. Like you don't. You don't really know what it's like to touch that many people, but then you go to say, you know, I went on a trip to Japan once and I was in a bar and I saw two women using Instagram at the bar next to me in Japanese. And like, that's right. We translated it. I remember it, right. You know, so it, it feels, I think very, very different. That's
0: very surreal. I just went to Japan. We opened a little goop pop-up in Japan, obviously much smaller scale than Instagram, but I had the same sort of holy shit. Like we have a store in Japan. This is totally surreal. How did this happen? How long were you into the process when you guys started to think about selling the company or when did, how, how far into the process did Facebook
1: approach you? It all came together pretty quickly, but here's what I'll say. We had launched, so it was two years in probably, 2010 to 2012. We, we sold the company in 2012. It was weird because we went from zero to 60, like I said, that quickly. And then we were scaling and everything was crazy. And then we were raising money and, you know, something I'm sure, you know, you've been a party to as well. And I remember the round we were raising. We went out and we were asking for a $500 million valuation, which is like a lot. It's a lot of money, right? But we got basically laughed out of the room. You know, and not literally, no one actually laughed, but, you know, I had this one person... I'm
0: familiar with that.
1: ...channel back to me after a meeting, channel back to me, like called me up and was like, hey, by the way, they thought it was offensive that you asked for this amount. I was like, whoa, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't mean to offend anyone. What's funny is like they, like at the time that seemed like a huge amount. And then, you know, the next day you have a company call and is offering twice that amount and not in fake money with valuation, but real money. And what's funny to think now is, you know, it's got a billion plus people, like how wrong you could, you know, possibly be in trying to value the company back in 2012 compared to today. Right. So it all happens really quickly, but I just, I look back on the experiences like, yeah, no one knows. Do no you think one...
0: that they thought it was, you were overvaluing it because there was no revenue attributed to it? Like, weren't users at that point considered super valuable?
1: I often think that... Maybe I just didn't do it justice. I I like blame myself in those meetings where I'm like... Your
0: pitch sucked.
1: Yeah. Did I just like walk in and totally whiff?
0: But the landscape changes so quickly all the time. And I think, you know, certainly there's a currency attached to social media now that obviously didn't exist then. And you hadn't monetized at that point, right? You had no ad business. You had no shopping cart. None. It was... But Facebook sort of saw it, I think, I mean, I'm only speculating, but weren't they having trouble getting people from desktop to mobile? I mean, what do you think the impetus was for them to acquire Instagram?
1: At the time, you're right. Facebook was primarily desktop-based. Mobile was a, like a, it wasn't a foregone conclusion. People were like, oh, yeah, mobile is going to be big someday. But I think the fact that we didn't have a website. I mean, we barely had a website. We didn't have an Android version. Maybe we maybe we just didn't put our best foot forward. Maybe that's the reason why. But I think certain people realized the potential. And I think Mark probably saw the potential in this thing because mobile was the future. You know, it was growing like a weed. And that was only on one platform. What would happen when we got to both platforms, both Android and iOS? And, you know, we clearly cared deeply about the business and we were going to be guardians of it for many years. But it's so funny to look back because... <laughs> I remember, you know, pitching the idea and people were like, there's no money in photos. I mean, the company does like a fair amount of revenue now, you know, (laughs) like
0: I'll say, I
1: think there are a lot of people that are very confident in their views in the short run, but don't quite understand how quickly things can change in the long run. That goes both ways, by the way, for companies that are hugely successful now, but won't be two years from now and vice versa. Companies that you're probably counting down for the count now that might be as big as Facebook someday.
0: What do you think those are? Like, what do you make of the Uber IPO?
1: I just think IPOs are very bad ways to judge whether or not a company will do well. I mean, the number of IPOs you can point to where they botched some technical thing at the beginning and the price fluctuated wildly. I mean, Facebook's one of those, right? Yeah. It's worth like, you know, 180 something dollars a share now. And it was, you know, 30 or something at its IPO price. There's like a, I think people read... Into the IPO process, but really it's just kind of like a, it's a pricing event. And then the question is, okay, where does the company go from there? I mean, Uber provides a service that lots of people use and find very, very valuable. Lyft does as well. Airbnb does like name all these companies that are kind of lining up to either they've gone pub, they've gone public or they're about to go public. I like, I don't know. These companies are great run by really interesting people and I think there's no better time to be in technology than now. It's super interesting. But I don't know who the next one's going to be.
0: When I think about what Instagram did, it really, I think part of the reason probably why some people had trouble thinking their way around it is it was such a new thing. I think people have a really hard time with a totally new paradigm, but not the consumer, not the user, right? So like... I think the same for Uber. One of these industries that are completely disintermediating others. Like it, for, I, I understand from a VC point of view. Like, are people going to use this? Like, I remember Will I am telling a story where he was given the opportunity to invest in Airbnb really, really early, and he was like, "Who's going to use this?" Like, I like hotels. I don't want to stay in anyone's apartment, you know. Yeah. And so he's like, "Ruse the day that." But I do think it's it's hard for people to some people to see big value in something that really has to shift like a behavior or a paradigm. And certainly that's what Instagram was doing at the time. I mean, I remember hearing about it and getting it and being like, wow, this is, (laughs) you know, but I never would have imagined that there was that kind of potential there. Like from, it's, it's incredible. It's funny. My children are I think really the first generation of children that have not been alive without social media, it is such an not not so much for my son. I think for the little boys, it's slightly different, but it, it is so integral to the way that these kids talk to each other and and also like they're sort of the different the different platforms represent sort of different sides of themselves. You know, it's like. Instagram is like who they're showing, you know, or the account that I'm allowed to see that she has, you know, it's like showing the parents and friends, like it's sort of the main account. And then you have the Finsta, the fake Instagram. Is that what it stands for? I think that's what
1: it stands for. Yeah.
0: And there are multiple ones of those. And, but it's, it's really incredible. Like the, the degree to which they communicate solely over those platforms
1: yeah, I think the thing all great ideas have in common is that they all seem crazy at the beginning. Right. But here's the problem. A lot of really bad ideas also seem crazy at the beginning. <laughs> so that's what makes being an investor like so hard because, because it sounds crazy doesn't mean it's a good idea. Do you
0: invest in companies? I
1: try to. I didn't really have a lot of time to do it when I was doing Instagram, but I've started thinking more about trying to do it. It's actually, it's not because... I think it'll be, like, the thing that, you know, moves the needle one way or the other for that company, but rather, I just think it's super interesting to take all the, the like, lessons that I've learned yes. and just say, hey, like, you know, guy or gal who started this company, here's what I went through, take it or leave it. Like, right. it's not, it's, you know, I'm not saying it's this way or that way, but here's some experience, here's what I went through, here's how we dealt with it, here's some lessons that we learned or some mistakes that we made, and we made a ton of them. Yeah. Please don't make these right, mistakes. Right, exactly.
0: I mean, it's almost like you feel a duty to younger founders to offer that information. It's like, I I learned almost everything by making really critical, costly mistakes that set me back. Like, I wish I had had somebody who was like, no, no, no. You know, let's just stop and think this through before. And you would be such a great board member too. Are you? you. Do you sit on
1: boards? I don't right now, mostly because I've decided I'm going to take this time to unplug and figure out what's next. But to your point, when you're starting a company, there's tons of stuff you don't know you don't know. Yes. And most people survive. We did. You know, like you get through it. But man, like, wouldn't life be great if someone just said, "Hey, like, here are a handful of things I did when starting the company that made all the difference in the world." Maybe you should write that book. That would be a, that would be a lot of fun. I actually, what's funny is one of the people I consider a mentor literally writes down lessons through his life. So like, as he has painful moments throughout his life, he'll write down the lesson that comes out of that oh, that's moment. So beautiful. And and I guess over time, just collected these things over years and years and years and years. And now wrote a book about it, Principles. Have you read this book Of course. Book? Yeah.
0: I just interviewed Ray Dalio oh, you for did. this podcast. Great,
1: there you go. So I, I mean, I look up to him because for a bunch of reasons, but I think the idea that you're gonna take that experience and write it down and make it general enough that anyone else can relate to it, that yeah. it's not hyper specific to just, you know, a dot com. Or in his case, maybe investing. Right. I think is admirable at his a human level. This is pretty level.
0: specific to investing.
1: Well, well the some first of it. Part. <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah. as no, a yeah. as a human, like you you want help, and I mean we can all name someone in our career that stepped in and helped. Yeah. You know, and and gave us a chance. So, you know, back to the investing side, I see it more as like how do you how do you step in and give a company help yeah. when they most need it? But I don't know. I, I it's like it's an exploration for me. We'll yeah. see.
0: What? Who are some of those people for you, and what did they say?
1: So very early on, yeah, where do I want to start? Adam D'Angelo was the first CTO at Facebook. And he had left, and he was doing his own company called Quora. And, uh, but what's funny is I met him very early on when he was at Facebook, and I was like, man, this guy's really smart. Like, I just... Like I want advice from him when it comes to tech stuff because like I'm technical, but not to that level. I mean, he went to Caltech, like he's up there, right? Right. And that first day when we launched Instagram and the the servers were crashing down and we were, you know, we're like, this is all over. We're done. I called up Adam. I was like, Adam, I literally, we don't know what we're doing. Can (laughs) you help? And he was there in like an hour. How had you met him? Wow. This goes way back. Mark. Zuckerberg had just moved to the West Coast and hired a few people, including Adam. And he was recruiting people. And, and oh man, this was a long time ago. We all went to like some kind of, some party or something. Okay. And I remember meeting Adam there.
0: And you're like, I'm going to keep this guy.
1: Well, I always remember thinking he was so smart, so nice, so thoughtful. And I mean, you're the CTO of Facebook. How cool is that? Yeah. Like, you know, and you saw the company go through its it's growth. And so he was that guy to us where we were able to call him and say, he came hey,
0: right over. Yeah. He
1: came right over and was like, Oh, you should do this. You should do this. And why is that that way? And then, you know, Mike called a few of his friends who were sysadmins, and they came over and man, we had like a party, you know, it was, it was just me and Mike running the company at the time, but we had like four or five people pitching in to like save this thing. That's so and, nice. uh, yeah, so people like that early on can make all the difference. And Adam invested, so I think he's very happy with okay, the company. Okay, good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And were there other? Did you sort of collect other mentors along the way who had who were ahead of you as well in terms of like growth of their companies and like like Ray? How did you meet him?
1: I met Ray. I I went to a conference that I I spoke at. It was a random conference in Chicago, and I was being interviewed on stage by actually one of the Facebook board members, and Ray was the next speaker. And they, when you're one of the speakers, they actually, they pull you over and they make you like stand in the wing until, you know, the next speaker's, uh, or sorry, the speaker before you's done. And I stayed around for Ray's talk, and he was talking about how he wrote all these principles down and and learn from them and, and how he believed in certain principles of being like super, super transparent with people. And I was just really moved by, Oh, here's a guy who thought about, thought critically about how to design a company from the ground up in a way that maybe not everyone would do. It's not typical. Right. I wasn't going to say normal, but typical, (laughs) right? Like, and, and believe deeply in it. People like this, who, who have an amazing wealth of knowledge to share, I think are out there. Mm. And, I hope through the Instagram experience that I I can do the same to someone someday.
0: I'm sure. I, I don't doubt you will. We'll get back to today's chat in a minute. At the end of January, our editorial team put together a digital detox guide. For many of us, a true reset requires some time away from the screens we typically spend all day staring at. But depending on how we use it, there's a lot of interesting technology that could be beneficial to our well-being. One example is the new Teslar watch designed by the team at Timex. The Teslar watch uses special technology and a turbo chip designed to match the Earth's natural frequency. The goal is to hopefully help keep the body's own electromagnetic field in balance. There are Teslar styles for men and women, which you can find in their online shop. To learn more about wearable wellness and Teslar technology, just head to teslarwatches.com and enter code GOOP 20 for 20% off. That's GOOP 20 Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What was it like to go from being a founder, a co-founder with a lot of agency and autonomy to going to a big company like Facebook and having, I guess, a boss? Or were you sort of siloed? How did it work?
1: It's funny that you say, I guess, because I think that's how I felt for a long time. I was like, <laughs> I guess I have a boss. You know? It was actually great. You know, We were tiny when we got there. I mean, again, we were 13 people. We were in a room. It's like we could hide in the corner and no one would know we existed, And I think they were very, very good at giving us the space that we needed to do what we wanted to do. And I think it's a testament to that and a lot of hard work from our team that we were able to get it to the scale where it became, you know, over a thousand people at the company offices, you know, in three different locations. Some people overseas, billion plus people using the product. We had an ads product that worked really well. And like you said, we had Instagram direct, we had stories, we had, you know, shopping wasn't out yet, but there there's like all this stuff that worked really, really well. And I think it was a testament to being given that freedom. And as you know, you know, you have a lot of people here. It's a balance between giving them the space to run with creativity and also achieving a mission. And I think we struck that balance for a very, very long time.
0: Did it become perceptible to you that as Instagram's kind of power grew within the organization that there was some kind of shift in attention to Instagram or power or did people get incrementally more excited about it?
1: Well, I think the thing that was most noticeable when we got there was just, you know, companies have different cultures and you don't realize when you start a company and you're alone, you think all companies are like your company. But then when you get with another company, you're like, whoa, we actually believe in different things. I used to make this joke, and this is not that we did it any better, just to be very clear, but there were these posters all over the wall that said, like, um, done is better than perfect. And, I, and you know, Instagram employees would always poke fun at me because they're like, heaven, your, your poster says perfect is better than done. <laughs> you know, like...
0: I'm in your school, yeah, unfortunately. Like, sure. I mean,
1: I don't think either way is wrong. It's just you couldn't have two different perspectives and it was interesting as, as we grew and grew and grew, it's like, okay, if you're building a culture and you have a menu of options in front of you, which ones do you choose? And is it okay to choose different ones? Can you have a group that believes done is better than perfect versus perfect is better than done over here? And like, does that work long run because you're hiring the same people and sometimes people transfer from your team to their team and vice versa. Does it, I think it's really hard. Yeah,
0: I was going to say ultimately, probably not. I think it's
1: really, really hard. Yeah. And it's funny that I give this example cause I don't actually think this example caused a bunch of strife at all. I, I just, at the end of the day, I think maintaining two cultures is very difficult. And again, one is not better than the other. It's just at a certain point as a founder, like when you found something, I'm sure you have very specific goals and principles for this place. And you feel strongly about those. And if those ever changed, it's almost like a little bit of you changes. It's like, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a give and that's just, that's hard. So you asked initially, it's just like, how was it to be inside of a larger company? Like, how did that feel? And I think the hardest part was just how do you manage those two cultures over time? But I think we did a pretty good job. And in some ways, I think we probably influenced... The Facebook culture, just as much as the Facebook culture influenced the Instagram culture. And in the end, I, I think we were probably both better off for it.
0: And how do you, and I might be naive, I mean, because I've never been on Facebook. I somehow miss that whole thing. And so Instagram is really the only social platform that I use. And in my experience, like, it's a pretty positive place. So how did, how do you reconcile or how did you reconcile that your parent essentially was under so much scrutiny for like the negative side of social media, whether it was interpersonal or peer to peer or governments intervening in elections? Like how, how was that for you?
1: I think there are a couple things going on here. One is that Instagram by design, it was hard to be negative. Because it was photos and videos, and you couldn't post links. Like, if you want to post uh, a link about, you know, some story about something political, I mean, you can, I guess, if you screenshot it, and but you can't really. Mm-hmm. So it didn't become a place where it was expected for you to, like, share an opinion on something controversial. Yeah. Right. So because it wasn't that way and because it wasn't built that way, both on purpose and also just because we were about sharing your life on the go, not about articles or links right, um, right. that
0: existed presumably right?
1: Yeah so well it existed on Facebook it existed on, on Twitter, Twitter but because we didn't have that, I don't generally and I'm over generalizing here but by and large the Instagram community was about sharing your life and it's kind of hard to get angry at someone for sharing their life. It's like oh yeah cool vacation or like you know yeah. like go
0: fuck yourself.
1: <laughs> Your kids are really cute. You know, like it's stuff like that. Like which I don't think makes Instagram any less serious as a platform. It's obviously very big and influential. Absolutely. But it didn't really give the space for a lot of the the tension to happen because it was just built on it was built for a different thing. We were growing very quickly, but we just had a much smaller community. And I think when you're as big as Facebook is today, you're obviously the largest target for lack of a better word. We just, you know, we were less interesting to go after because we were much smaller. I think that's changing over time. When you look, I think historians, when they look back, they will say no platform escaped right. election meddling, for instance. Even it's, Instagram? Even Instagram. How? I think the, the idea that if you are in front of a lot of people, meaning as a platform, and, and you have a captive audience, you're too interesting of a platform to let go. And the good news is, you know, I saw the team working on this stuff. Like they're very, very good, you know, meaning the team protecting the platforms, both Facebook and Instagram against Mm -hmm. things like election meddling. But the bigger you get, the bigger a target you are for those types of things. So my point- And how
0: effective do you think they were?
1: You mean- In
0: prohibiting meddling the team?
1: Yeah. Well, initially not very effective, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I think that's why you formed the team, right? If I'm honest. But I, I mean, listen, most people were very surprised this was going on. Because not in a million years would people wake up in the morning and go, you know what, Russian, you know, the Russian government is doing X, Y, Z. Like, people just don't. But the massive response I saw internally, was it was really inspiring. Because it's not just about U.S. elections. It's about other countries, no, too. And Brexit,
0: and mm-hmm. presumably.
1: So anyway... If we're back up to the the top level of this, I think that Instagram was able to fly through without a lot of the, the same issues because of some of these structural elements, both being a different platform and also just being smaller. Also, like, you know, very early on, we focused on building the community in a very specific way. I had this button that existed on in our admin section on our site where if. We thought a user was, uh, was being, I don't know, what would you call it? A dick. Uh-huh. Uh, my grandmother's listening to this right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, then we okay. better we'll take out all out. the cursing. Yeah, yeah. But we could just uh, we, we could take that user off and we would just shut them down. And it was something we did initially willy-nilly. We were just like, yep, that person's being bad. That person's being bad. And after a while, it became both too much to do manually. And then also, we felt like we should probably have some rules in place where we're not, you know, just making these judgments here and there. But we built a culture internally where we didn't accept bullying. We didn't accept racism. Or we didn't, like, what are the things you don't want to accept in, in a community and you police it hard, So I think that set a tone. And then, you know, by the end, we were doing things with machine learning to basically detect bullying or detect people being mean to each other and either taking that down or blocking it or kicking those people off. And, I mean, we made strides. That's great. Yeah.
0: How old's your kid now?
1: Uh, 16 months. That went fast. Yeah. It's so fast. So cool, though. Being Uh, a dad is, I mean... Every dad listening, and every mom listening thinks this is silly because it's like, oh, of course you should know this. But like I knew it was going to be meaningful in life. I didn't know it was going to be this meaningful. And, you know, for the first six months, I'm just like, I don't know. It's a baby. I don't know what to do. Like you're just... That's but a now, dad, a common dad thing. I but think. now like I walk in, she grabs my pinky and she like walks me around and points oh. at books and is like, I want this book, not that book. And if I read the wrong book or in the wrong way, she gets unhappy. And it's like... <laughs> Yeah, she's as particular as me and as smart as her mother. It's a bad combo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What do you think your rules will be around, if any, around social media with her?
1: One thing I want to make sure I don't do with, you know, our children, and I'll say future children included, right, is make them feel like these devices are the enemy and like they're an indulgence. Technology changed my life in such a deeply meaningful way from like being a young kid, learning to program to like making an app to everyone should be able to do that. And no one should look at a phone as if it's an indulgence that just is going to suck your time and take you away from people. Because if anything, it connected me with way more people in the long run, but I think it has to be done well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sitting and staring at YouTube videos all day, I don't know, maybe not like even Instagram, sitting, staring at Instagram all day, right? Probably not the best thing for you. At the same time, I think, you know, me playing games early on and learning to program levels for those games was what got me into technology. And I think there's a balance there. So I hope that technology is embraced in our household in a way that it gives access to learning. And if we could do that, then we will have succeeded as parents.
0: I mean, we have to accept that technology at this point is the cornerstone of our society. And it's almost like I remember somebody saying once I forget who said it, but you know, parents being like, "No, no, you you can't be on the iPad." is basically analogous to when Elvis Presley went on whatever T you know TV yeah. show and was like shaking his hips, and parents were like, "Rock and roll will never enter my <laughs> house." And I I do I do think that it is analogous in the way that there is there was a big discomfort with Elvis and like bringing overt sexuality into the culture, or however it was perceived and. This idea that technology, we don't totally culturally understand it and its impact and how we relate to each other, et cetera. Like we're at such a nascent stage in this whole journey, I think. Yep. And yet, you know, with having a having a teenage daughter who is so concerned with you know, her image on social media, other people's images on social media, what it says, like what it can do to self-esteem, like I'm missing out on X, Y, Z. And we have to accept that this is just the way that it is. So it really becomes about how are you shoring them up with the idea that they are whole no matter what. And in in the face of whatever's being reflected back to them, that they are
1: whole. I just think technology isn't one thing. It's, right. It is both educational videos, but it is also, you know, music videos or something like it's they're different ends of the spectrum in terms of what you get out of them and neither are bad. It's just, I I think I hope parents take a nuanced view to technology and understand that it can both bolster your education, but also do all of the things that you just described. So there has to be a balance. So I'm right there with you. Yeah.
0: And I think people say, Oh, you know, we have to do something about, you know, people making incredibly negative comments and really at the end of the day, my my feeling is there are so many traumatized people who are unresolved and who have not looked within and are not self-aware and are not metabolizing all their stuff. And it's such a relief to them to be able to comment something horrible about somebody else. It feels like a relief in their body. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. So I think it sort of becomes more about, you know, as I said, like, understanding the light and dark of humanity and accepting the light and dark. And the more that you have totally accepted yourself, the less the less impugning it will feel or the less dangerous or the less, you know, unless it's yeah. like some crazy overt threat.
1: But maybe the last thing I'll say on the, this is just like, you know, as a high schooler, I was into electronic music. I liked programming. I was like a calculus nerd, right? Like I didn't have the I same sound like community, my son. but I, did, I didn't have a community in the same way that today, if you go online, you can find, you know, kids your own age who are into the things you're into. And that's so inspiring to me because you can find your place in totally. your community. So totally. it cuts both ways, like everything in life. Everything. And I think it's, it's parents' job, you know, myself included to just find the balance.
0: Yeah. Before I let you leave which I don't want to let you leave. What does it feel like to not have a job? And what are you going to do? And what is it? Do you just like, are you drunk on freedom and, (laughs) and daydreaming and creativity? Oh
1: man, that sounds like a good plan. I'm going to go do that. Um, (laughs) It's a balance. Okay. So here's what I'll say. I'm super happy. I get to spend time with my kid. I've gotten the first break in my life in a really long time. I'm 35. Like, you know, I I feel like Instagram was a career that in my head felt like a 30 year career and I realize it's not, but it felt like that and it was awesome and it was an awesome chapter, but it's also awesome that I now get to open up a new chapter and that is, it's brimming with possibility, which is both exciting and terrifying at the same time. But the way I chose to do it was kind of structured. I said, you know, I'm going to take half of my time and I'm going to focus on Doing something that is both challenging mentally and, and like, I've always wanted to do, but I wouldn't get time to do when I was, uh, when I was working. So I decided I was going to get my pilot's license. I've like, I've always wanted to try. I always thought it was going to be really hard and kind of scary. And, and by the way, it was all of those things. But it's one of the most rewarding things in the world is, is to be up in the air and look down and be like, I'm doing this. It's crazy. So, you know, that took, it was like going back to college. I can't explain. You should see these textbooks. Like I thought it was going to be, oh, take some lessons. And then, you, you know, you like learn to drive, right? No, there are like textbooks that you're going through. It was hard. And that was so humbling. Cause I was like, I ran a company, I did all this stuff. And then like, I'm back to ground zero, like having to learn this stuff and I'm not great at it. <laughs>
0: It's so important,
1: but I uh, I love it. beautiful. That. It was really cool. It was did like you... an intellectual challenge to do so. That that I did, and then the what other. What about half... your
0: psalm thing? Are you a master psalm yet?
1: So I'm a level one master psalm. I don't even think you're allowed to say you're a level one master psalm. I'm like a, I passed my intro level. Here's the here's the thing that I think like if you hear about the things that I'm doing, you're just like, why is he doing that? Like he's never gonna do X, Y, or Z professionally. I am a big believer that like you should be a lifelong learner. And I I don't know like if there's a philosophy that exists around this, but if if there isn't, there should be. I meet a lot of people who graduate from college and they spend no time learning. Mm -hmm. Like, they go to their job and they work up the ranks because they learn little things about their industry and they become specialists or whatever. I just decided a long time ago, I was going to keep learning. And if it's about wine and food that I like, then I'm going to do that. So I I took that intro class and that was hard. If it's about learning, you know, if it's about getting your pilot's license, I wanted to do that. And I have this list of things that I just want to learn because if we're, if we're on this planet once, yeah. Can you imagine leaving this planet without like learning the things that all these people have learned to do throughout time?
0: Thank you for joining my chat with Kevin Sistrom. You probably know this already, but you can follow what Kevin's up to on Instagram. He is the original at Kevin. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.